This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm your host, Daniel Shea, and this is another episode of the Focus, All We Mean, an ongoing discussion and debate about how we mean and why. The premise of the podcast is that meaning production and the products of meaning making are pretty much everything there is for us humans. As a species, we do not encounter a thought or a thing, not even ourselves, without us going and making meaning with it or adding meaning to it. Meaning is how we act as much as it is why we do. And so the subject matter of this focus reaches into absolutely every quarter of human life. Our daily routines, our career paths, our bids to acquire new knowledge, our attempts at connecting with or at disconnecting from one another. The format of all we mean is simple. I open every episode by stating plainly the topic, and then my guests take up this topic to discuss and debate it in the hope that we all might learn something more about meaning. The topic of today's episode is, what does it even mean for a machine to generate? And for that, I'm going to read a piece from Nature, the 20, uh, the September 2023 issue, titled, Scientific Sleuths Spot Dishonest Chat GPT Use in Papers. But first, to my guests, I invite back Bill Cope and Mary Kalanzis, both professors at the University of Illinois, and today also Dwayne Searsmith, e-learning technical specialist, Information Trust Institute, also at the University of Illinois. Welcome to everyone. Great to be here. Hello, Daniel. <laughs> right. So our topic, as stated, is what does it even mean for a machine to generate and to get the talk started, I'm going to read some of that paper, Scientific Sleuths, by Gemma Conroy in the September 8th issue of uh, the Nature magazine. It begins, On the 9th of August, the journal Physica Scripta published a paper that aimed to uncover new solutions to a complex mathematical equation. It seemed genuine. But scientific sleuth Guillaume Cabanac spotted an odd phrase on the manuscript's third page, regenerate response. The phrase was the label of a button on ChatGPT, 
the free-to-use AI chatbot that generates fluent text when users prompt it with a question. Kabanak, a computer scientist at the University of Toulouse in France, prompt, promptly posted a screenshot of the page in question on PubPeer, a website where scientists discuss published research. The authors have since confirmed with the journal that they use ChatGPT to help draft their manuscripts, says Kim Eggleton, head of peer review and research integrity at IOP Publishing, Physica, Physica Scripta's publisher in Bristol, UK. The anomaly was not spotted during two months of peer review. The paper was submitted in May of 2023 and revised version was sent in July or during typesetting. The publisher has now decided to retract the paper because the authors did not declare their use of the tool when they submitted. Kabanak has detected typical ChatGPT phrases in a handful of papers published in the Elsevier journals. The latest is a paper that was published on the 3rd of August in Resources Policy that explored the impact of e-commerce on fossil fuel efficiency in developing countries. Kabanak noticed that something of the equations was not quite making sense, but the dead giveaway was above the table, the note, please note that this is an AI language model. I am unable to generate specific tables or conduct tests. The problem of undisclosed LLM produced papers and journals points to a deep issue. Stretched peer reviewers often don't have time to scour manuscripts thoroughly for red flags, says David Bimler, who uncovers fake papers under the pseudonym Smut Clyde. The whole science ecosystem is publish or perish, says Bimla, a retired psychologist formerly based at the Massey University in Palms North, Palmerston North, excuse me, Palmerston North, New Zealand. The number of gatekeepers just can't keep up. Okay, so there is the end of our quote. And I mean, this conversation today will certainly take some technical directions, but to start with on a communication level, I'm pretty shocked at what slips through the peer review process. Uh, uh, you know, it's not just the peer review. Those of us who are educators who are, you know, working with students who are writing dissertations and other manuscripts, it's becoming really a, a challenge at the moment because uh, it's happening so quickly and they not don't know how to declare what they're doing. However, if you know your students well over time, you can tell that the manuscript that they're giving you is not the same as the manuscript they used to give you a little while ago. So I think we're all facing these issues. But I've got to say, your quote comes from the dark ages, um, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> September 20th, goodness, that was a long time ago because the world's changed since then and the same spring of nature have a service where you can actually get your text rewritten um, uh, if you're not a first language in English speaker. For grammatical speaker. purposes. Oh, grammatical not purposes. Content. Okay, because not what's the distinction between <laughs> the, the, the form of discourse and its content? Not a yes, business. yes. This this is an important issue, I think, Bill. Really right. important, which, which, so, which I've been um, trying to air here on this podcast and, and make a bit of sense of, because this same Nature magazine yes. has run a a whole slew of articles on the disadvantages to non-native, as they call them, I would call them people who are multilingual, uh, people who didn't grow up speaking English, to the detriment of their research. And I'm, I'm very divided on this, because I think this is a time where we have to really understand what it means 
to be using English in the scientific community? And, and, and is that the language in the same way that, you know, these researchers or scientists imagine a language when they go to learn it to travel in that country or to work there? My argument is it's, it's not. But look, I tell you what, it's not just about language. It's not just about fixing the English. That um, and, and I'm going to suggest Wayne talks about this. There's a new set of, uh, or a fast emerging set of um, tangential technologies around the large language model called um, uh, RAG, Retrieval Augmented Generation, right? So let's say you have a, a cancer journal. I'm going to take that as an example. Um, so what you, you can do is if you have that cancer journal and you have uh, 10 million words written historically, you put it into there and then you won't just get um, corrections based on uh, you know, traditional stuff about English grammar because you're an English speaker. You're going to get stuff which is fine-tuned to the specific discourse of cancer, which is a technical discourse. So look, the borderline between language speaking and the content that's carried in that language is going to be blurred by these things. And Dwayne's been working on this retrieval augmented stuff now. Maybe, Dwayne, you might have a, something you might like to mention about where this stuff's going. Right. Um, sure. So, yeah, I mean, that what Bill said is is, is very true. Uh, you, you can... Um, so there's a whole lot of, of work being done around this idea of using this this RAG RAG uh, framework to add context, which is what everybody needs, because these models very often cut off a year or two. That, that's changing, but they cut off a year or two prior to uh, our being able to use them. So uh, more recent information is not there. So you want to augment that perhaps with more recent information, or you want to augment it with... Um, you know, information from your specific domain that you as a professional have collected. So being able to use that information in the response when you submit it to then help to guide the answer to something more credible or, or something that is um, uh, more known uh, is, is, is something that is, is currently available and that's something that we're doing. Uh, and also the model builders like OpenAI and Google and Facebook and others are very much aware of this. And so they're building in sourcing mechanisms into their responses so that they can you can better identify exactly what the, the language model did. So part of our problem, of course, is that the rate at which they're changing and the rate at which they're picking up on what uh, what the issues are and how things can be improved, et cetera, et cetera. So Bill, you know, can say uh, what you read out was in the dark ages, but we're all traveling in the same way. But we do have a practical reality right now, whether it's publishing or students' work. And I suppose, as, as you've heard us say before, uh, that we're, we're trying to control it. And Dwayne has been key uh, in, in that in order to allow them to go, and particularly our international students, uh, because when they go to the AI before they finish their work, it's, it's very truncated, very uh, not uh, developed uh, properly. But if they go after they've done their work and their research, uh, it can have more value. So we're trying to get some protocols in place, at or guardrails or whatever you want to call them, in our little domain that allows our students to use the affordances of this new technology to improve their work without cheating or without going beyond what they had intended 
and without uh, distorting uh, what they meant to say. So, you know, all of us have to think, I don't know whether the big companies will think of the ways in which we as educators or publishers need to do what we're doing because they're not talking to us, right? They're listening to what's being said out there, but they're not actually talking to universities and I doubt if they're talking to publishers. They're on, you know, a a plane of their own because it serves so many different purposes from business to, you know, education. By the way, I've got a definitive solution to all this, by the way. I don't know why people are worrying so much. So the best thing to do is to put um, the students in a a room, proctor them, lock them up, um, um, no internet connection, actually better still, better still no computer, please handwrite your response. And then if the room's locked, they hand it in at the door, and then we can see what they remembered without reference to the world of knowledge, right, right? which is... There you go. There's the solution. Do you you remember the lash back at the software they used during COVID to watch people's eye movements and stuff when they were taking tests? I think I, I think there's a level of irony in what you're suggesting there, Bill. But but uh, but 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 in all honesty, though, the, the the distinction there, though, Bill, that you draw between the the discourse and the grammar. Or to be even more provocative, the cleaning up of the sentences and the actual thinking that has gone into what it is that you want to say or have researched or found and so on. I mean, it speaks also to what Mary's saying. I mean, this is a tool. We need it. It's there. But it's when we use it and how that matters. And, you know, what... what, By the way, it's a great tool. Just imagine I'm writing a cancer article um, and, you know... It's a great tool, but you've never used it. Yes, I have. For writing your papers... Not for writing my papers, no. no. But but um, I've used it for other things that I shouldn't have used it for. But I'm not going to confess that. Um, but, um, um, actually, the truth is, do you want me to tell you the truth of what I use it for? What? Oh no! Can I confess it's about this? No. Stories. One of the things. I, no, no, no. One of the things I, I I'm annoyed by is the, all the protocols around randomised controlled trials, right? Where we we're kind of forced into that in the education area around this idea of science in education. So I got a, the GPT to build a kind of randomized control trial for me, and it did a much better job than I would have. Um, so anyhow, um, but by the way, that underlines exactly why these things are really, really useful, to be quite frank. Um, and, you know, what, what they are, let me put a positive spin on it. At procedural um, levels. Uh, yes, about that was, that's about a procedure, and you can no, be accurate. No, it was, it was a lot more than that. That's not just well, a procedure. Really. Uh, anyhow, look, what's, what's profoundly useful about it is that if I could load into my rag, you know, that the, the Dwayne was just talking about, a whole lot of books about uh, experimental trials and blah, 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 which is kind of the, the body of knowledge about the field, including very advanced stuff, um, and that was then able to reprocess what I've done, what you're actually leveraging is collective knowledge. So ironically, what we've always done in academe, in literature reviews and in libraries, is we've referenced back our personal knowledge to collective knowledge. So if you wanted to put a positive spin on this, this is a technology for levering collective knowledge, leveraging collective knowledge, where then the challenge is, how much of this did I do and how much of it did the GPT do, right? So in this case, the the randomized controlled trial um, things that suggested suggested things to me that I wouldn't have thought of, which was really handy. But then I hacked it about, I reworked it, I did this, I did that, um, um, and it was then a genuinely hybrid piece of work. Now the question is, 
I could have got that by going to a library and reading a book about it, but the GPT processed a pile of collective knowledge about that. What's the difference? So, you know, the question is then about the provenance of knowledge and the social construction of knowledge. That's the interesting question. Right. Well, those, those articles that you spoke about at the beginning, um, do, do we know at, at, at what degree? I mean, yes, uh, the uh, reviewer picked up or the reader picked up some language. Which... They were just silly to leave those words in. Yes, it and it was silly. also 20, September 2023. I've forgotten that that yeah. you know, that's know, faded wondering. into the past. Yes, but beyond... Uh, yeah, There's one thing we know for certain. They don't know how to do cut and paste properly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it does... It, I mean, if this was a trial in front of a judge, you know, I mean, it would be, you know, incriminating evidence in the sense that if you leave something like that just sitting out in the open, then, well, how far did you actually... Exactly. <laughs> you know, how much did you lean upon the chat GPT to do work for you? By the way, but, but, I've got a serious way of doing this. So my joke was lock them in a room and make them do it in handwriting and no internet connection and blah, 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 which is actually the not a joke in the sense that it is the model of traditional um, assessment, right? So that's what I'm not joking about. Um, it's seriously the model that's used. And, and continues. And, and this doesn't affect that model and continues widely. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't affect that model, um, which is a very problematic model anyhow because all that model does is not test anything substantive but test your long-term memory essentially that's what it, that's what it tests um my mo most serious example is the gpts that give you feedback let's say it's a cancer course course and i'm a medical student so i'm going to take something senior uh, something high level knowledge that i'm learning in a graduate degree um is give them access to all the gpts but give it in a learning environment where you could do a keystroke analysis of the extent to which you relied on the resource the way stuff came in because it was pulled in, the, the, the ways the machine modified your text um, as opposed to what you did, and then evaluate the relative contribution. And the keystroke analysis really is, um, you know, when we normally write, it's one keystroke at a time with a fraction of a second between. It's not cut and paste, as Dwayne just said. Um, and also, um, we move backwards and forwards a lot. We go to the end. And, so it's not very hard to get a kind of a, a digital um, handwriting, if you like, signature on work. So the way to leverage this education is that everyone's going to be using GPTs all the time. Put it into the educational setting and then have various um, right. various ways of, of checking the signature, the relative authorship of collective knowledge, individual knowledge. Really, but, that's what it is. It's yeah. a relationship between collective knowledge and individual knowledge. Yes, but alongside that, if we stick with education for a minute and to go back to the article that was um, listed for today's uh, conversation, um, as we say, meetings are about and and a pat and looking for pat pat create patterns, and what we don't understand and what ordinary students coming into this kind of very, you know, uh, confused and you know opportunities and, and dangers is they don't understand the differences between what we used to do and what's possible. And what I've tried to do is go back to those questions. How is meaning pattern now? And what are the relationships between the words that are being produced either through the machine or through humans? How do we understand the grammar as a way of meaning in the world? And we need a new grammar right now. We can't just, you know, we sort of 
left those issues adrift as we all rush to use this thing and are caught up in the battles about what is legitimate and authentic. But we don't have a meta language or a parallel uh, learning uh, environment that helps us interpret and understand what the differences are. And, and that's really missing at this point in time as we're galloping forward. Yeah, and this 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 is key. I, I totally agree, uh, Mary. And, and, and I think, uh, Duane, I'd, I'd like to also hear on, on a more technical level with the recent advances in the RAG, but also just generally with large language models. I mean, when, when you're working with these tools, do you get a sense of this different grammar that Mary's talking about? I mean, I know that Bill and Mary have called, you know, large language models a sort of anti-grammar. Um, is, that, is that a term that you can make sense of in that context? And can you see how, you know, these things think differently than we would need to think if we want to solve new problems? Yeah, well, it definitely... Well, first of all, saying that these things think, put scare quotes around think, <laughs> uh, they don't really think, okay? Let's just, just dismiss that right now. All, all these are is, is statistical views on a very large corpus of data that has been mushed down into numbers, okay? And and that's a static model for the most part. You can think of it that way. Think of it as a static model, a network of numbers, <clears throat> that have been derived from crunching through all this literature and online content and Reddit and all this stuff, whatever, whatever the particular company had access to that they used to build their model. Um, and that's a, that's a whole discussion in and of itself. But so you have, have this mathematical view. And then when you ask the, 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 the model a question, you ask it to generate a response to some text you give it, it's merely statistically looking at its, its model and generating that text. There's no, there's no thinking going on at all. And basically what you're getting back, although as, as these models get bigger and more and more sort of emergent quote unquote properties evolve, um, at what you're getting back is merely a reflection, if you will, of the combined source material that's been put into that model. So you're, so if you think about it, you know, if your response is to ask it a question and you give it some context at the beginning of your question and then you ask your question, the model, as it's, as it's reading through to give you your response, as it's building it, it's, it's reading through your, your text. And in, inside the model itself, its context is continually changing as it's advancing through your question until it gets to a point where it's supposed to start generating an answer, at which point in time you have located yourself in the context within the model in such a way that your answer should make sense. Um, and, and then it generates the answer, whatever the answer is. Now, the, the point of context that you arrived at before it generated its answer, you know, could, could be largely moved around based upon changing your question, right? So, Depending on where that point is in, in, in the model space is where is going to determine what your what your answer is going to be. Um, and that, that's basically how these models function. So um, and in terms of other, other sort of emergent properties that we've seen that go beyond seem to go beyond what the model knows or can or has been taught, uh, those, I think, are are being 
you know, now sort of plausibly explained in other sorts of, of ways um, in, in terms of, well, in order for the, for the model to quote unquote learn how to answer these things appropriately, it needs to know how to determine sentiment, let's say. So there typically is like a, a neuron or a set of neurons or weights in the model that, that tracks sentiment. Nobody told it to do that. It just did that on its own because it naturally needed to, to be able to appropriately solve the problem that we're asking it to solve. And so with that all in mind, you, you can sort of see where, where, this, where this information is coming from. All right, Dwayne, you use the word taught or fine-tuning, whatever the words are, but aren't there, aren't there uh, isn't there a lot of intervention around that that shapes what the process is? Well, we don't know about it. We don't know who does it or what they're doing or how the model is being tinkered with to produce particular kind of orientations. Can you speak to that a little bit? So if you, if you look at, on, if, if you go online, you look at the models, the, 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 the descriptions of the models from, from Meta and from, from Facebook, from Google and from OpenAI and, and um, others, there are other smaller companies that are producing models like Mistral and stuff like that. If you look at those, what they use to build those models, there are um, established um, uh, data sets like one called the pile and stuff like that, where, where they have accumulated these large data sets of, of information and they use those to build these models. Now the, the perceived sort of like bias or what the model knows or whatever is largely controlled by what they put into those and that's a large um, area of concern and research right now for a number of different reasons. One being that, you know, rep- that all sort of, you know, information and viewpoints and stuff is being represented in there somehow. And, and secondly, that it's not being manipulated in some way, right, to to guide people to one or more, you know, conclusions or what have you. Um, and, and also on the front end of these models, they're putting elaborate censoring networks that, that basically prevent the models from answering about a large number of topics. Um, so those, those things combined, the, 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 the engineering of what sources go in and then the engineering of what sort of model answers are, are okay to come out, um, are what are determining, you know, sort of the boundary conditions around what, what a model semantically will talk about, won't talk about, and how it will talk about it. These are like corporate gods, in a sense, you know, shaping uh, what we think we are free agents about in using... Well, it's yeah, it certainly is not getting direction from the public or from any other, like, like, like academia. It's not, it's, there's no sort of mechanism for that to happen. Yeah, and this is one of the things that actually concerns me. That's why I started off, um, and I'm, I'm very thankful, Wayne, for you to unpack some of what's happening behind, uh, you know, the interface so that we get a better sense of what's actually happening there. But, you know, this idea of what what is the actual i mean we talked last time in our previous episode on all we mean about language you know what is in this case in academia the text form that's being used and what does it mean to say it's being it's being published in the english language as opposed to it's being published in the text of science you know i I see a distinction there and the i see a distinction as well in 
or an important question to be put out, just as, as you're suggesting, Mary and Duane, that, you know, academia needs to weigh in on these things. It shouldn't just out be out there in the private sector. What does it mean when we say what chat GPT is best used for and what not? Um, the, you know, this is this is your area of work, Bill and Mary. Yeah, a couple of points. One is it's in the clutches of these big companies at the moment just because they've got the uh, they can pay the electricity bills, basically, because it involves a massive amount of processing and all that kind of stuff. <coughs> but there are lightweight models on the way where you can, <coughs> excuse me, even on a relatively small computer, like perhaps even a laptop one day, or perhaps even I thought today that Apple are working on stuff that will happen on phones. Um, so that will actually probably loosen up the control over those becomes, you know, that's what I'm kind of thinking. And the other thing is this kind of rag and fine-tuning stuff um, is that if people in domain-specific places can build their own supplementary LLMs. So in other words, what you have is you have what's called a foundation model, which basically knows how to put a sentence together because it scraped the web for a zillion sentences, but then domain-specific knowledge if it's supplemented by these uh, additional things. So I don't think it's absolutely um, inevitable that the big companies are going to dominate this. Um, that And and what one interesting thing is all the big companies are doing it. So, you know... Um, uh, Microsoft never succeeded where Facebook did and, and Google never succeeded where, and, you know, it goes on, you know, each of the big companies does one particular thing, but they're all doing this, which is also interesting. So yeah, that it, is, yeah. It's a very, very strange moment. But look, I also want to track back to um, the point that Mary was making about grammar, which is a really important point, I think. So um, and a little example that I give, and this also links to Dwayne's point about the statistical nature of this stuff. I say, okay, I'm going to give you three sentences now, and my focus is the word walked, right? Um, I walked to work, uh, I walked the dog, um, and the uh, the guard walked the prisoner to his or her cell, right? Now, that's all walked, and in simple grammatical terms, it's, um, uh, it's you know, a verb, it's past tense, and in fact, it's Two tokens, the first part is walk, and then ED says it happened in the past. Um, so when you break it apart into an LLM, it's, it's going to be, um, you know, these things called tokens, which are in fact collections of characters which have some semantic import. That's the reality of it. So an in, interesting thing is that the LLMs, although they can't think anything, they only do stats, um, do have a kind of semantic focus, right? So the next thing is that in um, grammar, I could become much more finely grained, this is traditional grammars of English, about these three things because they involve different types of agency um, and that's often represented in forms of um, uh, um, I'm trying to think of the word for it sorry I've lost the, the top level word for it now that, you know, there are different forms of agency involved and diff also different forms of case so I walk to work, to work is a relationship of the verb to the place and to is um, a, the English marker of a case so um, uh, what Mary and I call this in our grammar is we call this transactivity. And in fact, um, you know, it's not just past tense, right? In fact, if you do a really subtle grammatical analysis, there are a zillion different types of walked. Now, what's very interesting about the LLM is they pick up on the zillion different types of walked um, because, um, uh, because they're picking it up in context of the words around it. It's not because they know the different types of walked, it's because different types of walked happen in, in different sentences to mean different things and they find a similar kind of sentence in terms of the relationship of the words. In other words, jails and walk, um, dogs and walk, 
uh, work and walk and so on. They'll go and find that. So um, the interesting thing is that although they have absolutely no notion of semantics and no notion of grammar, they may end up finding a much more finely granulated, calibrated kind of grammar than traditional grammars ever could because they got traditional grammars get lost in their complexity. If you look at volume four of um, Halliday's Big Grammar, so Halliday's a brilliant person and amazing and wonderful and we give thanks for Halliday. Um, but the fourth volume, which was jointly written by um, Christian Matheson, it gets to points of, of distinction which are just, okay, it's far, 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 far too much. And also, by the time you go to this point, it's nowhere, nowhere near enough. So one of the important things is that although grammars are kind of a theory of meaning, um, what um, uh, the LMs, the LMs work with meaning as well, just simply around the the relationship of the words to each other. And they can do that with a degree of, remarkable degree of subtlety, not because underlying in the technology they have any subtlety at all. Right, but Bill, to go to your first point, it's not just about word order. You know, the semantic part of it is really important, which is not only related to word order. And I think what Dwayne did for us, I mean, this was Dwayne's initiative, uh, when when this first happened to us as as educators working with masters and doctoral students, he put together everything, and I think I've said this before, everything that uh, was in our courses. You know that Bill and I had written, that our students had written. He About five years, thirty five million words. Thirty five million. He 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 took that initiative, knowing that if you shape the semantic terrain or the context, you're more likely to get. Um, uh, uh, you know, students are able to engage with it in a way that's more relevant and, and more accurate. So, Dwayne, Dwayne, you explain explain yes. that you you you, 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 you a, this was your you'll be able to give a better explanation than we can, Dwayne. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So we took um, we wanted to build our own context of domain specific information knowledge uh, around the area that our students were working in specifically. Um, and uh, we had this this uh, fortunate to have this collection of, of past works that students had done in our classes, plus all the papers that Bill and Mary and books that Bill and Mary had written and the group had written also. There's some papers in there uh, from, from the group and research and such. And uh, we Basically, I took that all and I, and I, I crunched it down into um, a vec what's called a data, essentially a database. It's a vector database. We use uh, specialized vector embeddings that get generated. You, you pass text, a chunk of text into a model like OpenAI, and OpenAI will come back with a vector of numbers to put in your database to represent that chunk of text. And you do that for all the chunks of text that you want to put into your database. And then later, when you do your queries, you can query against that and pull out that knowledge and then arrange it in such a way that you can package it up in your in your query to the model to get your response. So so that's literally uh, what I did. And there's a lot of, of sophisticated ways to to sort of improve upon that even that we're looking at. But um, you can also have models go out and query the web instead of query your own domain expertise. Um, you can have them generate you can have multiple agents where one agent is evaluating the progress of the agent that's answering your questions and it might see that oh this agent really needs more information so it would make the decision to call out to the net to the internet on a query or to a knowledge base or something so 
it's 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 when you bring in the idea of multiple agents, which is where we're going very quickly. In fact, you know, these systems behind the scenes already do some multiple agents, a lot of multiple agent stuff, especially. And if you start looking at systems like Gemini on the Google side, they have access to all of Google services and everything. So, you know, they're they're you pulling information from those and they're using those to answer your questions. And, and on the open AI side, they have a simple, a similar set of, of capabilities that they're doing. Uh, so this is going to become a network of large language models answering your question and then using specialized knowledge sources to help help it to do that. Yes, uh, could, could, I, could I ask, uh, Dwayne, do you foresee then that, uh, because you, you've put together, you know, a domain-specific knowledge base for what Bill and Mary are doing and, and, and the education system that they're working in there, could you imagine this being cropping up in, in corporations for their own needs in to get to the area of science and publishing, which is at the, the heart of this this podcast, and at journals, research journals, editors applying this throughout the entire vast base of their publications and using it for, you know, internal review, editorial review, and so on. Does does, does this seem like a near future that you can imagine? Well, I, I think in many respects it's already already here. I mean, you saw um, about uh, a year or so ago, you saw Google start an initiative to try to to you know lock down creators about you know any sort of claims that they had to work that they had published that Google might have access to, right? And and I think that that was a time at the time. I think that was in preparation for their knowing that they were going to be using a lot of this information in their models, and they needed some way to sort of you know protect themselves to say that they tried to. to let people opt out if they could. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, so if you have access to a, to a, to a large amount of data, like you're a publishing, a publisher, let's say, or you're, you're like our group or you're a researcher, or you have, you have these data stores, this, the data is really, really important. And so all the, these companies are, are, you know, you start talking about data stores or unique data stores that haven't been seen before. All the, their heads pop up and their eyes get wide and they're all where, right? So yeah, I mean, the data is very, very uh, important. It's more important moving forward because, you know, new and novel types of data. And there's going to be fights over in, in, in the public domain and in just, you know, with, with sources online, there's going to be fights over who has access to data. And there's, you're going to see people being taken to court saying, you have to pull all of my stuff out of your model and you have to pull all this stuff out of that model and so on and so forth. That That's going to happen. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, these are valuable resources that people have and people need to start thinking about, you know, what in the future they're, they're going to allow the, to, these things to be used for. I, I would I would like to just if, if I might marry because I actually want to direct a question to, to, to you and Bill as well which is um, I mean we've just got a wonderful description on the technical side of what's happening but now we get into the area of meaning and, and what to do with this uh, uh, turning back to uh, this is December 2023 so it's probably early modern era <laughs> not not the dark ages anymore but this is from December 2023 in nature how generative AI, could disrupt scientific publishing. And it's just two lines, which I found really interesting. I quote, it's never really the goal of anyone to write papers. It's to do science, says Michael Eisen, a computational biologist at the University of California, Berkeley, and editor-in-chief, I stress this, and editor-in-chief of the journal eLife. He predicts that generative AI tools could even fundamentally transform the nature of the scientific paper and the way it looks. Um, 
I, I, I want to ask both of you on a sort of grammatical descriptive level, and I use grammar in your widest sense there, of what is it now that people need to be understanding about those questions? Because coming from a scientist, I find this rather shocking statements. You know, I'll say something a little bit different, but you remember the, the term, the media, the media is the message? Remember? Yeah, remember? Marshall McLuhan, the media is the message. Well, what, what we're facing now is not just what we've just talked about, but the platforms and the uh, and the tools that are used to channel this stuff to us. I mean, already we're, we're, we're hearing that we're going to have to throw away our smartphones because the AI devices that are coming now are going to transform that. Well, in education, in publishing, um, the sort of thing that we've done in curating kind of the domain and testing it, because we can't tell you yet how well it's going to work, we're in the process of doing it, needs different kind of platforms as well. You know, so that's a bit we haven't actually discussed, but it's equally important because the LMS is the, um, the uh, LL learning management systems that are out there and the platforms that we're using have to be radically modified to be able to achieve uh, the goals that uh, uh, of science or the goals of learning or the goals of education that you referred to. Uh, it's not going to be the same, and I'm I'm agreeing with him actually, uh, and that is that, you know, you have this, um, you know, this incredible synthetic tool which can actually uh, bring to bear a whole lot of ideas. Look, it's a tool like who, who is going to bother trying to write without a grammar checker now and without a speller checker in the background? This is a knowledge checker in the background. Um, now it's fraud. It hallucinates. It doesn't. Well, the library was a knowledge resources. checker. Yes, of course, exactly. <laughs> but this is just this on-the-fly uh, interlocutor who will speak to you along the way. And, well, that's the problem. That's the, well, that, that might be a great thing, and we're just going to not 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 worry about it. We've got to how do we use it and use it effectively? And look, so is the problem again the speed? Um, this is something that you've pointed up so much um, in your research. The, it's speed, but also the problem is that the synthesis doesn't have the kinds of um, uh, recognition of provenance, which was the, right. the hallmark of science. Right. So the hallmark of science was, please, you know, um, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants by all means, but 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 acknowledge the the, um, the giants. Source. There's a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful book written by Anthony Grafton called The Footnote: A Curious History. So who'd write a history of the footnote? <laughs> but, but but in fact, it's a book of incredible profundity, and that is, this is the moment when. You don't just speak knowledge, but you speak the authority of the past and your contribution to that authority, how you're adding to that authority by referencing, by putting in a footnote, right? Now, the thing is that um, uh, this this stuff, in the way in which it synthesizes stuff, doesn't do that. And that's one of the canons of modern science. So maybe it'll be able to do it sometime soon. Maybe it'll become better at it. Um, but... Um, but by the time it gets to you now, it's just such a mashup of everything down the back. And look, you know, they say it's a black box. And in the nature of neural nets, um, the underlying technology, it's hard to know how a result was reached because there's so much kind of so many convolutions underneath. Right. But, but it's actually that... kind of fun because you can ask the, the model, you know, how did it arrive at a certain conclusion or what sources of information it used and and it and it will it will tell you, but it, it's making stuff up because it really doesn't yeah. know. 
but but uh, I mean, in, in these RNGs, I mean, th- th- this is something that I think is, is essential. I mean, in these RNGs, uh, Dwayne, you're, you're telling us, right, you're getting some more of the recent information. You're certainly adding domain specific knowledge. You're, you're adding context, as you as you put it, which which fits in a lot of ways the context that, that Bill and Mary use in their technical sense. But is it not perhaps the case that without interest and your technical sense, in other words, without caring, basically, you know, to put it into colloquial language, we never will get a proper footnote because the footnote always was about interest, wasn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah, and I, I mean, and this is the troubling thing for me because I mean, if 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 somebody at that level of prestige, an editor in chief at eLife, you know, I mean, this is not just some shabby journal, is telling us, yeah, this what I would call the second half of science can be sort of you know stored off, uh, outsourced or whatever. Then I th- there's a number of problems. I mean, if we come back to Dwayne's point of the the value of data. I mean, at some point, we're going to be building off of synthetic content in the future, aren't we? I mean, if if humans aren't creating <laughs> this content out there, then... Absolutely. In fact, synthetic data is, is a huge, huge thing that's that's going to happen because they, they want to grow these models and they don't have necessarily as much data as they would like to, especially in specific areas of, model, of models where they want to grow the model's knowledge. They, they might not have, you know, particular data sets that are relevant so they're they're working on synthesizing a lot of this data and 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 also to get around you know authors rights they're trying to synthesize data so that is actually a a a very cogent point and it's a big movement going forward and it's not just about science it goes to everything from faith to politics to culture you know um the implications are just horrendous across that whole spectrum. And fantastic. And fantastic. Right. That, that, that's <laughs> quite, and, and here we are you know, tossed about by this stuff, trying to think, well, what, what can we do with the constructive? That's the important thing. So we've got to have a very vigilant idea to everything that's problematic about it. There's a lot of things problematic about it. But also, it's, it's revolutionary. And, you know, Mary and I have worked in this field for a long, long time. And every day for the last year or two, we've been kind of taken aback including taken aback with the work that Dwayne does, which is, oh, my goodness, this is just incredible and and frightening and amazing, and let's do all of it. But it is uh, progressing, Bill. I mean, we are trying to do something in our space, right? But you look around us, there's not too many other people in the academy, right, that want to understand it or harness it for the purposes of making meaning, not in this specific domain of writing, in terms of what it means for making meaning now. And and it's going to change, but it isn't there yet, right? And it's still in the hands of those who are using it around the issue of interest, who are still controlling interest with whatever they they find tuning and uh, and the way in which they're designing their models. Well, if the Dark Ages was September uh, uh, 2020, 2023. Um, I think everyone will be doing it by May 2024. There you go. I just <laughs> I just want to jump in and say one more thing about um, the importance of the context to the to in, in these models. If you don't provide a context, if the model doesn't have a a, a good context, it will hallucinate. So so the the reason why it hallucinates, right, is because. You know, you've told it to create output. It knows. It knows all about syntax and form. That's one of the things it's mastered from 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 being exposed to 
billions and billions of documents. So it will generate something in the appropriate syntax and form that, that answers your question. And, and, it, and it's, it doesn't have any real meaning to it because it's made up. That's why providing context in the form of rag and stuff gives it fills in that hole and gives it something to really focus on that's real. And that's part of the part of the, what you're trying to do. Does that mean then that a user should actually have, if not at that level of fine grained detail and you know magnifying glass sort of look, but as the model does of its context, should the user not always have actually more broader context to be able to be on a standpoint to be able to judge what's coming their way? That's that's my contention. My contention is that when we were talking earlier about people using chat GPT for research papers and stuff like that, well, my contention is that if you're an expert or very well, you know, versed in a particular domain or whatever, and you ask GPT a question like Bill did around his, um, you know, around a procedural sorts of thing, and it comes back with a nice answer. If you're in a position that you can vet that and evaluate that appropriately, that's, that's a very responsible way, I think, to make sure that you get coverage of your argument and that you don't forget get something that you know, and so on and so forth, as opposed to a novice that doesn't really understand the, the answer and then just cuts and pastes that and tries to use it. That, that's the difference. And that brings us back to its use, which is what Bill and Mary are trying to do, which you're helping them also to do, and which I've been floating as ideas also in science. I mean, if we come back to our initial quotation, I mean, the long and the short of it was that the these things passed through what we rely upon for scientific knowledge. You know, these, these, these papers that were somewhat, I mean, I don't know if they were forged, they were doctored, they weren't, you know, let's say responsibly put together. And, and the conclusion is, is that, well, the, the peer review system is stretched, you know, there's just too much to cover. And, 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 and there I say, Hey, well then let's use the gen, let's understand the generative AI. Let's figure out what it is that it's actually generating and then rely upon it in a way that can help that system because that system is in place and we need it. And actually, one of the interesting things we found with our students, so um, what we do with our students, by the way, we're all graduate students that are doing master's or doctoral programs, is we get them to do extended projects. Um, we run through their work with multiple prompts, multiple times, multiple passes across their work. We look at the work with this rag the vector database beside it, which has a whole lot of stuff about in instructional technologies and all the stuff that we do, 35 million tokens of that stuff. So, um, but what's interesting is that the feedback they get is more detailed and more voluminous than a human could ever realistically give. So we get them to give uh, peer reviews and then we say, compare the machine review with the peer review. Um, the peer reviews are more erratic um, um, and also they can't be as detailed and as extensive as the AI reviews because it's just a damn machine and all it is is stuff running through. So they're very, very, so they're, 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 um, the relationship with the AI, if, you know, we use this phrase cyber-social relationship, the cyber-social relationship is very, very different to a social-social relationship, if you know what I mean. Um, and the idea is to put the two together, have the one complementing the other. Um, it's not as if the, um, the machine is a supplement um, as a, sorry, is a substitute for human um, interaction and human feedback. Um, it's a supplement of a different nature. And peer reviews can be problematic too because of the interest dimension of the reviewer. Oh, depending and also on, the, yeah. the, the lack of knowledge. You know, the, yeah. the machine actually does no more. 
because yeah. it's read um, the foundation models read the five billion published words, and now we've added another thirty-five million, which is domain specific, and that's more than any person can know. Right, right. But and this have... is why it becomes so important then to yeah. have more reading on the peer review, more more yeah. eyes, more more people yep. figuring yeah. out what it means. Yes, absolutely. Right. Well, uh, closing out to do our normal round of what uh, does it even mean for a machine to generate? That was our topic today. Uh, what are some of our takeaways? Um, Bill or Mary, would one of you like to start us off? Well, I'll just be a bit generic. I think I think every time we come together and talk about these things, I feel like we're caught in a riptide between something that's galloping along and what individuals within you know, that train of movement are trying to do. And I think we're going to be stuck in that space for a long time now as we try to figure out what the grammar is of what we're doing and what the uh, context and interest issues, uh, how we apply a framework to understanding the patterns that are being generated and what we and the, their relation to what we might need, whether it's scientific or otherwise. So just we're focusing on this... Um would generate. Um, I think this is really big and it's taken taken me a long time to come to this conclusion because I'm resistant to you know, technology talk which is overblown. Um, but I think it's really big in the sense that um, uh, the machine really does generate and it's the, it's the first machine to generate coherent written text. I'm not going to say meaning um, because it doesn't mean, it can't mean. And um, a separate argument for another day is that it only secondarily deals with multimodality if it's been labelled with images and if you actually prompt it to create an image or a video or whatever with a language prompt. So let's stick to text. So this is big. Um, and by the way, my definition of text is anything that we represent in Unicode, which like includes cool. which includes math and it includes um, uh, computer code. So anyhow, um, what, what, what's interesting is um, it really does generate, and it really does generate coherent stuff in a way that, um, in a way which um, uh, no other machine before that has uh, been able to do it. And what do we mean by generate? I just want to use a word that Mary and I developed, or concept that we developed with Gunter Kress. It means design. And what does design involve? It involves available resources for meaning, in this case, right. Unicode characters. Um, and what you do is you take those available resources, you rehash them, which is what we do in every moment of speech and writing, um, and you produce something out the other end that's meaningful. And in this case, more Unicode, not the same as what went in, but what comes out the other end is coherent and meaningful. That is huge. I'm sorry, That's this is... Um, for me, you know, you're you're living up the road from um, uh, Gutenberg. <laughs> Gutenberg's founding place. Um, this is as big as that, I think. But it's you really know, machines used to weave things, but when you weave meanings, it's somewhat different. Well, no, it's textual meanings which the machine can't mean, but are meaningful exactly. to us. Yeah, right. right. That's okay. big. But that tension really matters. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And Dwayne, yourself, what would you be taking away? Yeah, so um, I like to echo kind of what, what Bill had said. I think um, so 
The important thing with these with these models, uh, it, whenever I whenever I'm a part of a conversation like this, I kind of feel like I'm the guy who is is putting the damper on everybody's expectations <laughs> and trying to basically say no, it's not it's not magic, it's not you know, um, yeah. What I really want to say from my own personal point of view is that this truly, I mean, when, when I look at what these models can do, it really does fascinate me. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed uh, at, at their capability, especially their ability to do logic at some level, reasoning at some level, and to actually some of the emergent sort of things like summarization and stuff like that, that in some cases they haven't been particularly trained on, yet they learn how to do it. So. I don't want to take away from that sort of surprising, real, very real capabilities that these models have. And as they get get bigger, they're exponentially more powerful. And, and we can unpack what powerful means at another time. But I, I really think that these are, are, are fabulous, wonderful tools that we need to learn how to embrace and, and how to work with. But but as Mary said, they're 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 coming on us. It's like going to be in a riptide. They're coming on us very quickly. And, and we have to figure out what to do because, um, you know, the companies that are driving this, the, the, the profit motive and everything is just so high that they're just going to keep pushing. And so that's something that as a society, we really need to grapple with. Yeah. And I, I would probably echo also much of what's said. Um, basically this idea that cohesive written text, I would almost say cohesive rather than coherent is, 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 is great and fantastic. And I agree, right? It's it's the 15th century nowadays, again, all over. Major revolution, for sure. But what I think is exactly necessary, you know, needed now is some reflection in yes. a way that, you know, we keep talking about. And, and unfortunately, recent past has not really said to us it's going to happen you know what i mean it's like absolutely <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't seem to be forthcoming but um th- there we are um thank you for all of that uh, that's it for this episode of all we mean guests were bill cope mary Colanzis, and today Dwayne sear smith i'm daniel shea signing out until next time here on scholarly communication